I'm Mel Stewart, and this is a GMM Takeover, the Swim Sign Podcast. Joining me today is a man that I admire and I love. Today we have Mark Spitz. From 1972 to 2008, he was the greatest Olympian of all time. And today we get deep into the Mark Spitz cosmos. We go back to 1968 when he was a young Mark Spitz, and he had the pressure to win six gold medals, and he fell short. And we get to 1972, and the seven Olympic gold medals, the moment that made him the greatest of all time. And we get his perspective on the Munich massacre when nine Israeli Olympic athletes were taken hostage by the Palestinian terrorist group, Black September. But it's not all drama. There's a lot of levity to this. And we begin with some levity. The story behind Mark Spitz, 1972 Olympic suit. I don't know if I can see this. I'll have to turn the camera here. But show us. I want to see this. There's, there's this, this thing in the shelf right there above my finger is a little thing that's red, white, and blue with stripes right there in a plexiglass box. That is the suit that I swam in in every single finals in Munich. That's a suit that won seven gold medals and has seven world records. Now that might not seem strange, but it's really strange because the speedo rep gave everybody swimsuits. They each had, if you were in one event, you had three swimsuits. And I said to him, but I'm in going to be seven events. I need my 21 suits. And he gave me 21 suits. The problem was, is that all the suits had a spot right in the front that was an ink stain during production of that particular size. And I was embarrassed to wear it. We found one that didn't have it. And I wore the one suit. But during my career, when I finished, I had more than 800 swimming suits that I had that were given to me, you know, over the course of my career. And they had never been worn, some of them. And so every time I went to a swimming meet, I had this like basket of brand new swimsuits. And it was just this thing that I had about wearing a brand new swimsuit for the finals. But what was that doing to my psyche that I couldn't wear a brand new team suit for the Olympic Games? It was really like freaking me out. But I said, I'll just go along with this. So my first race won the 200 meter butterfly. And I said, well, it's that's pretty good. It's a world record suit. I'll just put it on again tomorrow, you know? And, and so I ended up with just one suit that did all that winning. And I'm sort of proud of that. I overcame something that could have been disastrous because I couldn't wear a brand new suit. Now, I guess I could have, you know, but I didn't. There's so much to break down there. <laughs> first of all, I mean, my, my first thought is like, uh, if I'm ever in your house, I might, and you might, I visit, I, I, that suit might disappear because that thing's got to be priceless. There's, <laughs> there's certain priceless antiquities out there. And this is one of them. It's in, it's in Southern yeah. California in, in your library. Yeah. Well, I don't have my real gold medals. Uh, they're in the bank vault. They have been from the day I came back from Munich, figuring that I didn't want somebody to uh, think that they could come and visit them wherever I lived. It's true. That's interesting. But, but it, you, there's so many funny stories, which is why I love talking to you that you had, there was an, so you get the suits, it has an ink spot and you're embarrassed yeah. of the ink spot. This is the right. one suit that doesn't have the ink spot. Yeah. Yeah. It's right in the front of your privates. I mean, it's just kind of a weird thing to do. It yeah. looks like you went to the bathroom. You know, you can't wear that suit in public. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look, at, I had a question to ask you. How many times did you tie the front of your suit before to make sure that it was on before you swam in a finals? Just once? Or did you kind of like just keep thinking about it? OCD. Oh, yeah. You know, three or four times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's it's a function of that. You know, I guess we're all like that. You know, it's a, um, that's <laughs> funny about the suit. That's, uh, that's, that is a gem of a story that someone should make a short film about the, the all the, you, this, this young Mark Spitz, this young handsome Mark Spitz getting 21 suits. 20 of them have a stain. Yeah. It, it feels very cinematic. Yeah, well, I was just curious of why that suit manufacturer didn't have quality control on this particular style because it was a style that was made up prior to actual real production because they needed to get that swimsuit all to the Olympians because it was always a really big deal. Each Olympics, they would have a different kinds of stripes. And this one was really special because in the past, they were just stripes, red, white, and blue. This one had stars put on it. Which was cool, and and there's something else. So if, if we really want to get to know Mark Spitz, it's it's it, what I'm hearing. It's like we we get this one suit, you wear it over and over and over for obvious reasons, but still, it's a world record suit. You keep wearing it, 
you won all your medals in it. You wear the same sweater. You do the same warm up. These are all like, you know, your lucky rabbit's foot. Is this, um, are you a, are you a methodical guy? If the mathematical sequence makes sense, you keep doing it over and over and over. Are you superstitious? Yeah. I don't know if I'm superstitious as much as that. I, I like to identify with something that I feel comfortable with within, um, my own comfort level. And, and I used to wear gloves also because I would get nervous and my hands would get cold. And then I, it was actually really not that cold, but I would put gloves on and I brought those, you know, and I wore those in the pool. Now I took those things off, you know, because there was this parade of athletes, you know, out to the starting block. I mean, you know, th this, I don't think people realize this, but I, and I, and I'm sure it's exactly the same, even with the Olympics today, because I can't get down there on the, on the, you know, at the clerk of the course, they used to call it, where everybody would assemble. But we would all be in the room, like eight of us, you know, for the finals. And you were allowed one person in there. So there'd be these coaches, you know, rubbing everybody down and talking and everybody's looking at each other. And there's a bunch of chairs spread out all over the place. And it's like, my gosh, I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's like waiting to go out to an execution. I'm with everybody, you know. And then they would line you up on the way you had to parade out and get on the blocks. And, um, that's totally different. I mean, when you go to the nationals, um, outdoor championships or indoor championships, I mean, you basically just show up from wherever you happen to be parked, you know, in the building, you know, there was none of that. Um, just that you, we became a ceremony, a part of a ceremony, and you had to basically fall in the rank and just do it. Um, and figure out how to not get distracted. Um, I got very distracted in Mexico City. I became a spectator to my own spectacle, I say. Um, and I was swimming in way too many events that I had, I had no experience at being able to do because I had never practiced doing that in any kind of competition prior to that. And uh, I paid the price. I mean, I was a world record holder in two events and got a silver medal in the 100 fly and got dead last in the 200 fly. And wouldn't you know it, that would be the first event in Munich four years later. Um, you know, there was, one, there, was one guy, there was one guy of why I won seven gold medals, Doug Russell. He won the gold medal in the 100 fly in Mexico City. I didn't make the medley relay. I didn't win that gold medal. That screwed me up for the 200 fly, qualified first, and got dead last. How good is that, Mel? Is that a flip-flop failure? Pretty much. According to history, you had 10 world records going into 1968, Mexico City. You had 10 world records by the time you arrived there, and you were on par. And I don't know if the media added pressure to you, but you were, you know, you were, the prediction was that you were going to win six gold medals. So you were the guy to beat. <laughs> you know, so, I, I, and your I, kid. I, what was I don't the know how that, that got totally out of hand. You know, just a month or two before the Olympic trials, George Haynes at the Santa Clara Swim Club said, I think you should swim the 100 freestyle so you can make the maybe the sprint, you know, four by 100 relay. And I never had any experience of swimming 100. And I said, okay. So I go out on the swim, you know, and I, and I do pretty well. I think maybe Don might have beaten me. But I think I got second at that meet. I can't remember exactly. But fast enough to make qualifying times. And... I get to the Olympic trials in Long Beach and I'm swimming the finals in the 100 free and all I need to do is get fourth and I make the relay team. I get second and Don gets fourth. Not only did Don make the relay team, but he failed to make the individual event. You know? So this guy, I think Ken Welsh and Zach Zorn and I are in the individual event. I'm going, wow, I'm in heaven. This is the first event. I go in the Olympic games, swim my first event, I come away with a bronze medal. I mean, it could have flip-flopped and gone anyway. Out of nowhere was Michael Wendon with this crazy-ass windmill stroke that just kicked butt, you know, wins it, going away. Um, I even beat Zach Zorn. And Ken got second, and I got third. Wow. So I wasn't expected to win that race for sure. But the 200 fly and the 100 fly, I was. And I was on the other relays. I was on the uh, four by uh, 200 relay. And all I needed to do was win the 100 fly and make the medley relay. Well, I didn't do that. So I ended coming away with two gold, a silver, and a bronze. Now, go to 72. 
May, finished with college, sitting on the deck with Sherm Shavor at a workout, not wanting to get into workout, feeling sorry for myself. Like, I don't know. I'm scared to really train this summer. I don't even know if I want to go to the Olympic Games. I got into dental school. I'm going to be, you know, two weeks late for that if I go to Munich and blah, 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 all these other reasons of why I shouldn't be swimming. And it was just a cop out basically because I was super, super nervous about wanting to take on the responsibility of trying to swim in all these events because by then I was the world record holder in the 100 and 200 meter butterfly and the 100 and 200 meter freestyle. And obviously I'm swimming those events. Um, and I won all three at the Outdoor Nationals in Houston, Texas in 71, uh, in 1971. Well, he convinced me, you got to do that. You know, you're going to be a failure if you don't do that. So then I proceeded to, you know, think about that. But I thought about Doug Russell and I thought about what he had basically created this, this mystique. Matter of fact, it was two years later, I met Doug Russell in the 100, meter, in the 100 yard butterfly at the NCAAs in Salt Lake City. And back then, I false started deliberately. And you could get kicked out for doing that, but I false started deliberately because we had a three false start rule on the field then. So um, I swam up and down the pool, 50 yards, and I got out. And then I beat him. To me, that was the most important race of my life. Because from that point, I kind of redeemed myself. Even though it was the NCAAs and it was the 100-yard freestyle and it wasn't a gold medal, the fact was is that... I needed to beat him because I didn't know if I was going to see him at the Olympic Games. You know, he was older than I was. I didn't know if he was going to make it to 72, of which he didn't. So uh, I had a moral victory to a certain degree. But he, he is the reason that I think I stayed in the sport and, and, and stayed focused, to be honest with you. And I, I think that there's probably somebody in somebody's career that is the nemesis of why they're just burning inside, you know, they, they just sit down on, on a bee sting all the time thinking about it. And that, that was, that was the Doug Russell for me. It, let's, let's step back to 68. You, you came away with four Olympic medals, two of them gold. So, you know, you won your gold in the four by one freestyle. You, gave, you won your gold in the four by two freestyle relay. Uh, the expectations were high going in. Did you see that Olympics as a success personally? Or did you see it as a disappointment? Mexico City. At the time before 72 happened, I thought it was just a total disappointment. I mean, you know, I was believing these press clippings, you know, and I did, I did fall on my face. I mean, I didn't outwardly say I was going to win all these medals. I mean, just statistically, you could just say, well, what the guys entered in. I mean, here's the guys entered in. He's got the second or third fastest hunter free time. I mean, he, anybody can win that race. He's the world record holder in the other two, uh, other two events. And he's swimming in three relays that normally have had a history of always being the U.S. winning those deals. So for sure, he's going to win five gold medals. And whatever happens in the hunter free happens. Didn't happen. You know, when I think about it now, if I'd never gone to the 72 Olympic Games and never won seven gold medals, winning two gold and a silver and a bronze, even if they were relay golds, how many people can say that? I can't say that. People? I only got three, buddy. <laughs> well, but, but, well, the point is this, is that maybe I was over-evaluating what I was capable of doing, and I shouldn't feel sorry for myself. I mean, you know, look at yourself in the mirror, you know, and that was fine. Um, look, um, I'm really thankful that, that I – I had the success that I did because everybody wishes that they train properly, they taper properly, they're rested, they got their nice room that's at the village, you know, the food is good, I, I got a roommate that's not keeping me up at night, you know, and respectful, everybody in the, in the apartment, you know, that's at the village, and I move about my business and I go out and do my thing. And that happens for somebody. I remember the first time I was in uh, indoor nationals where I broke the 52nd mark in the 100 fly, 49.9. And it was at SMU in Dallas. And I was, uh, I think it was maybe 17 years old. It was actually the Pan Am trials that they used for the Pan Am games in Winnipeg, Canada that year. And uh, I knocked on my door as I left, kind of like knock on wood, good luck. And I said to myself, and I don't know why I said this, I said, well, there's Six guys in the pool, because that's all they had in those, you know, in those days in the indoors, the six-lane pool. There's six guys gonna be in this race tonight. 
somebody is going to come back and open their hotel room. A winner. Let it be me. Do you know that every time I left my room, I knocked on that door and silently I said that in every single race? That was part of also the preparation. Let it be me. I haven't lost yet. There's a positive thought. You know? I love that. Am I crazy? Probably no more than the next swimmer. <laughs> I, you know, we talked about it, uh, you know, outside of this recording, we're talking about laying down the night, right? Neural pathways and how your brain can rewire once you start having success. But I want to go back to 68. Um, I thought that 1968 in Mexico City was a disappointment. And, you know, I think among peers and having that, that conversation, yeah, you won four gold medals, four Olympic medals, two gold, two bronze, excuse me, two gold, silver and bronze. Huge performance. Amazing. But I absolutely expect that you would be disappointed based on the metrics going in. And I don't think there's, there's, there's no 1972 in that performance without the 68. I think. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah it's you, the Listen, it's my, it's my, it's my dirty laundry that follows me. You know, I mean, it got cleaned up and put away in a drawer that I don't have to remember and recall, but it was there always lurking. You know, it's funny to talk about psychosomatic. So, and I've been trying to find this and I think I found it once, but I wasn't thinking about doing what I'm about tell, to tell you. And that is, is that at the end of the pool in Mexico city, they had a certain logo for the Mexico city Olympic games, just like they had a logo for the Munich and they have all these different kinds of logos for all the Olympic games, but they had these gigantic, three gigantic balloons. They're like weather balloons. And they had the logo uh, on them in the, in the Mexican colors of the Olymp of their, their national flag, you know? And, um, I, I walk out in the pool in Munich and I'm looking just before my start and I'm looking at the end of the pool 50 meters away and I'm, I'm hallucinating seeing these stupid balloons again going, it's the 200 meter butterfly, the race I got dead last in, <laughs> you know, what's going on here? And I said, take me to something that's comfortable. And I took myself to that workout three 200 flies in the pool that I was in, in Sacramento, California. And that's where I put myself. I'm not at Munich. I'm at that pool. I'm doing a push off, you know, but I'm going to get on the starting block to do this push off. And my brain just took me there immediately. And I swam and I go 007, break the world record, get a gold medal. Then the next time I walked out on the starting block, which was later that day to swim a relay, about two hours later, I was now in Munich and I was looking at the end of the pool, which was actually this upstairs little kind of like a restaurant thing. And I didn't have to look at those crazy Mexico City balloons. So am I crazy? You bet. But that's what I needed. But I, need, but I needed to do that, Mel. I, I, I needed to overcome this fear. You know, I, I mean, I can't tell you what Michael Phelps was thinking about when he was swimming eight events in, in Beijing, but I would put a gentleman's bet of a dollar that Mark Spitz somewhere, a flash of me was in that thought process and wherever he put me, whether it was either a comfortable feeling or a whatever it might've been was all a part of why he was so successful. And so I think that we all need to do something like that for our demons. Cause there's no perfect thing that comes out jovially and not being conscious of like, well, I'll throw all caution to win. There's no such thing. If you're going to be a champion, I can't, I don't, I don't know how you can win a gold medal in the Olympic games and say, well, I'd, I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. Now that might happen for somebody that's in some long distance race, like a 10,000, like in track where you've got a little bit of time to make up or not feel sorry for yourself. But in some of these shorter distance events that I was in, I mean, if you don't get off to a start, you're dead, you know, in the water, so to speak in a hundred. And now that they have the 50, it's even worse. And in a 200, I mean, if your pacing gets a little bit psyched out and you're not where you are on the split time, then no matter what you're trying to do in the last lap, it's just not going to be there, you know? So, 
that that goes with a tremendous amount of thought. Michael Phelps, in terms of his orientation, when he got with Coach Bowman, was all, I mean, the kid turned pro at 15 years old. It was all about going for seven medals. And it was all about that performance. That was, uh, I mean, his contract with Speedo, it was written, <laughs> it, was, it was baked in. If he, if he won seven gold medals, he got a million dollars. Yeah. Which we thought was a whole lot of money. And it wasn't. He, he poured it all into his foundation. But yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yes, you, you were, you, you were, you were right here. <laughs> I was somewhere. I was somewhere. Listen, I, I think that when somebody looks back at their career and say, what, what contribution did, did you make? My contribution to myself was doing what I was capable of doing at the right time. So I walked away from the swim pool with no stone unturned that if I would have done this and I would have done that, I could have, I did all of that. But what my contribution was, was I became that line in the sand that became a target and that what I had done for future generations would become a benchmark for somebody to achieve. And that became their personal goals and where they identified what they wanted to get out of their sport and where they wanted to be, you know, at the end of their career. I mean, what greater accolade is that to me than to have somebody like a Michael Phelps come along and break my record? Um, I mean, you have no idea what a relief it was to when he finally broke that record because then he now takes the baton of that relay, exclusive relay, and marches now to a new set of eyes and youngsters that look up to him. Because as I got older and older, I became a figure that became one when I was in my 20s and 30s, still theoretically identified to a Rowdy Gaines and people that were just coming in to making their mark in the sport to where now I'm like the grandfather figure, you know? And that doesn't relate to like Michael. Michael's filling that shoes and, 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 and they needed to have somebody do that, I think, for the sport. And there'll be somebody else that may not break the record of what he's got, but they'll, they'll, they'll be the Caleb Dressel that will take that baton and whoever, whomever it would be. And Katie Ledecky's doing that in women's uh, for swimming. Um, and there'll be some new star, you know, whoever that might be. And there's several that are lurking from this next Olympics that we'll have here this year. I have some questions just out of curiosity, just, you know, it's like, I've never asked you even in, in phone calls, uh, and I just want to kind of go through history, but I am super sensitive to uh, altitude. How did altitude affect you in 1968? Mexico City is at over 5,000 feet above sea level. Did you know you swam? You swam well. It wasn't a great performance. I know it's a disappointment, which makes a lot of sense. But did you feel any altitude sickness? Did you feel off? That's a great question. Um, and the training camp reflected the concerns that the United States had for all the sports, whether it was swimming or track and field or whatever. So we tr lived in Colorado Springs, trained at the Air Force Academy for a good three weeks, three and a half weeks. And there was a special group of us swimmers that they made arrangements to basically take a cabin halfway up Pike's Peak that was even of a higher altitude, which was fun. Um, there was about eight of us that did that, you know, Mike Burton, all the distance swimmers, 400 IM people, stuff like that, 200 fly guys. And um, I didn't have it any different. Um, I certainly there was getting it used to. I mean, you, you ran out of a little bit of gas, you know, in the 200 fly a little sooner. But everybody else was running out of gas. I mean, the oxygen was the same in lane number two as it was in lane number six, you know, or, or the outside lanes eight. Um, we had had a meet in Mexico City the year before as sort of a trial. And I remember that my times were very slow um, in the 200 fly and stuff like that. But everybody's were um, that wasn't used to that altitude. Um what I found that being at altitude was I ended up having bronchitis a lot during training session. Um, and I was sick a lot. 
And I just really couldn't get the workouts that were necessary that I think under my belt for the three weeks before and the proper taper. And I think that probably contributed to, to my lackluster performance, maybe in the hundred fly. I mean, I didn't lose by much and, and if things just twisted the other way and I won the hundred fly, then I think it would have been a, a different scenario. So I'm not using that as an excuse, but a month after that Olympics, I had my tonsils out because of that, you know, at the age of 18. So that was kind of an interesting experience. Also swimming at the Olympic games in Mexico city, Mel was very late in the swimming program back in those days. It was in the middle of October, which was a time that most people, I mean, we are finished normally our summer season, you know, for outdoor swimming was basically August, late August. And we're talking about mid-October. And swimming in those Olympics was the second week of the Olympics. So it was right down to the closing ceremonies. I mean, it was, so that was different. So to maintain yourself in shape for that period of time was totally different. Um, another thing that happened to me was this. We'll go back to Doug Russell. I never had an experience. This was my first Olympics. Being in a training camp competing against people that are basically your competition. It's one thing coming to a swimming meet and seeing them and swimming in the prelims and swimming in the finals, but I didn't train with them every day. I couldn't watch what their repeat times were. I couldn't watch what their habits were. And since I was swimming in a multiple events and Doug Russell was only swimming in the hundred butterfly, he seemed to, when we get up for the evening sprints that we would do, he would just, kill me time-wise. And this was building confidence to him. Now, it didn't phase me at the time because I was doing sprints that would be times that were familiar with me and I thought they were perfectly fine. And I really didn't pay attention that he was swimming just a pinch faster than me. But what that was really doing was saying, I can beat Mark Spitz. I can beat Mark Spitz. I can beat Mark Spitz. And you do three weeks of that. He went in with a hell of a lot more positive confidence than I did. You know, and the hunter butterfly in Mexico City was not that far into the program. So I wasn't tired from swimming a bunch of times at that point. 1968 was, uh, you know, if you look back in history, it was this was a the United States was on fire. Civil rights uh, was was exploding. It was, uh, you know, we had a lot of assassinations in Mexico City. Uh, there were two things. There was a. Uh, you know, when I when I when I researched in history, they went out and they cleared out a bunch of poor, you know, poor people in certain areas. And uh, I know that the athletes were some were aware of it, some weren't aware of it. It was it was it a thing? Did you know about this? Because it was it was kind of horrific back then. Well, you know, I had a refreshing in my memory because it was a documentary on this just within the last year. Or so what they did was that they actually took a lot of people that were committing crimes within Mexico City and put them and incarcerated them to get them off the streets so that there wouldn't be any of these types of continued activities of protests. And there were protests a week before the actual um, Olympic opening ceremonies. And we were aware of this because we were there about a week and a half before the opening ceremonies in Mexico City to get acclimated, uh, that they um, put these people and got them off the street. Um, I wasn't aware of the fact that there were a bunch of killings because of some of these activities in parts of Mexico City. So from that point of view, um, we weren't aware of that until they let them all out after the closing ceremonies and they all came storming to the Olympic Village. And it was scary. You know, it was also kind of weird. Think about this. It has nothing to do with swimming, but it's, it's an interesting history of the, of the Olympics in Mexico City. Because swimming was actually in the second week, just before swimming started, maybe a day or so before, there was a thing where um, there was all this commotion at the Olympic Village at around one or two in the afternoon. And the press was screaming and they were all outside of this high-rise apartment complex where all of the U.S. was housed, swimmers, track and field people. And I kind of looked out my window with, I remember Gary Hall and I, um, and we were looking out and there was all these people screaming and uh, to somebody above us. And it was some track guys. 
And I didn't know who they were at the time, but it turned out that they were Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who had just done that fist raising thing of winning their medals on the, on the, on the podium. And that was quite amazing, you know, of the impact of that and the commotion around that, um, to be a part of that and, and to experience that was, was, was quite amazing. See, it was, it, it was a, yes, yeah, a political statement and it's, uh, there's, there's been another documentary just about that alone and, and it, yeah. many documentaries about that. It's a tell, it's a, it, I didn't know the full story. I didn't know about the guy who got bronze, who was Australian and white and, um, he was such a great track and field athlete. It, it was a, I, I should have written down the name so I could drop it here, but I'll put it in the post when I post this, this podcast. Yeah. But well, I became very good friends, as a matter of fact, um, with Bob Beeman, the guy that did the long jump. Um, been doing a lot of things with him over the years. I mean, he was able to explain to me from his perspective of, of the implications of really the impact of what that meant and still continues even to this day, unfortunately. Um, you know, it's really funny, um, not to name drop, but when we all flew back from Mexico City, I'm on the plane. Um, in the very front row, because there was no first class and business class or coach. Everybody was just all lined up um, from Mexico City on a charter flight. And I was sitting at the window and next to me was um, Dick Fosbury, the Fosbury flop. And next to him was Bill Toomey that won the decathlon. And I was saying, wow, this is cool. And all these cool guys. Another thing is too, I only got the open, I only got the march and the opening ceremonies in Mexico City because swimming was another week away. And we marched in and it was very lengthy in time. We all were assembled in this field outside of the stadium. And I had to go to the bathroom just before we were basically starting to parade in. And United States is in Spanish, Estados Unidos, and we were just in front of Ethiopia. And when I got back in line and they put everybody in height and all this regiment, you know, there was the girls were first in height and then there were the guys were in height. It had nothing to do with sports. But because I went to the bathroom and they'd already started to go, I got put in the back. And there was only, and there were eight across abreast, but there was only four in the back. And they were all of us had gone to the bathroom. So that was, it turned out to be a really cool thing because nobody was watching what we were doing. But what was even cooler was directly behind us before we actually got in the stadium, I got to meet a guy named B.B. Bikila that had won the marathon in, uh, the, for Ethiopia in the Rome Olympic Games, barefoot. He won the uh, marathon with shoes on in Tokyo in 64, and then he was now in his third Olympics. And it was really cool because I didn't have to go too far because it was just a sign holder that said Ethiopia. And he was next with the flag. That was cool. So we get into the stadium and we're sitting in the back. Of, we're standing in the back of the line, but I didn't want to stand anymore. And nobody could see that we were. So I just sat down and I didn't realize this. But when they ran in the torch, you know, to light the cauldron, we weren't supposed to have very specific instructions. Don't bring in these instamatic cameras that we were given there was a zillion of them that they had brought in and they were all being passed to the back of the line. And I had probably about 30 or 40 of these cameras because when the guy ran up the stairs to light the cauldron, I was sitting with a perfect view because that staircase was right in front of me when I turned backwards to the line. So I got, what the great opening ceremony experience that I wasn't getting scolded. And I had a perfect seat sitting, you know, down there in the field. But we didn't, I didn't go to the opening ceremonies in Munich because swimming was the next. Uh, then they had the opening ceremonies on a Saturday and swimming started Monday, Monday through the following Monday. I could hear it from the Olympic Village, but I, I wasn't there. Which is what everyone experiences now. If you're a swimmer, you, it's very rare. Some people do opening ceremonies. I have opinions about people who do open ceremonies who are swimming. I, just, I, I wouldn't advise it. It's not worth it. It's way too much work. It's exhaust you. But uh, I brought up 68 in the context because, uh, you know, you're, you're this guy who's walking through history. You're not just winning medals as you go and, and on this trajectory of being, you know, becoming the Olympic icon. But you know, it, it's almost as if your seven medals outshines what happened in Munich. And it was, uh, it was a pretty catastrophic terrorist moment. And uh, the bombing of the Israeli team. And the in the helicopter, and there are a lot of people have seen the movie, but uh, it's it's 
was that something that that was that something that that did you did you experience fear after you had this great moment of winning seven gold medals? Did were you did, did everyone question. stand still? What was your experience at that time? That's a good question, and I have a good answer for it because <laughs> I was there. <laughs> um, so during the Olympics, there was always a press conference for the sports, especially in swimming. This, you know, um, and if you're swimming one event, it's great. You know, you finish your race, they take you off to the drug testing, um, which is hard to do, by the way, because you get a pee in a bottle. And the problem is, is that when you're nervous before the event, you get dehydrated and that's all you're doing before the event is going to the bathroom. So to, to go take a, give them a urine sample afterwards, you could sit there for a while. So they had special bottles that were sealed that you'd open up and drink a lot of water to help you along the process. And then after that, we'd go to the press conference. Well, about four days in, where I had won five gold medals, the uh, manager, a guy named Ken Treadway, said, we're not going to do any more press conferences, Mark. He basically keeps saying the same thing. You know, I'm really happy with my performance, but I've got to get back. I've got to rest. I've got to go now eat dinner because I hadn't eaten really dinner. I've got to go and basically prepare for tomorrow and, and go to sleep, unwind, which was hard to do. And they said, great. So it was arranged that I would have a press conference on Tuesday morning, the day after my last race, at nine o'clock at the press center, which was contiguous to the Olympic Village. And that's what did happen. And it did happen at nine o'clock in the morning. But after my last event, which was at about, oh, I guess seven or eight o'clock at night, I was going to dinner with two guys, Heinz Klutmeyer, Sports Illustrated photographer who had done several covers with me. And I'd just recently been on the cover of Sports Illustrated and, uh, for that week that I was in the Olympics. And um, uh, Jerry Kirschenbaum, who was the guy who had followed swimming for a number of years and wrote for Sports Illustrated, eventually became the publisher of Time Magazine. But so we were very good friends. I mean, I had dinner with them at the Olympic trials in Chicago, both of them. Um, and they said, we're going to take you to a nice dinner afterwards. And so they picked me up uh, uh, at around nine o'clock and we went to this real fancy restaurant. And at that restaurant um, was Avery Brundage, who was actually the head of the IOC. And um, a side note, which is important, is that when I didn't swim, I swam every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but I didn't have any events on Friday. Um, there was a a hearing that the Russians actually logged a pro, lodged a protest against me and the U.S. swim team because I held up a pair of shoes um, wandering around after I got uh, my medal ceremonies. And the story behind that was is that I did that on the second day. And the second day, they changed the format. They tried to tighten it up. Between, they didn't have consolations, so they didn't have a lot of time in between events. But they had a lot. They had time enough to where the swimmers could basically dry off, get their their sweats back on, and then go out for the medal presentation. On the second day, they shortened it up immensely, and so the little boxes of clothes. I didn't have time. They're, they're starting the music, and I've got to go right now. I mean, it's the whole. It's television. It's on television. You know, all over the world. So the last thing I didn't get a chance to do was put my shoes on. So I had the socks stuffed in the shoes and I, I actually put them on the uh, award stand. And then a guy named Harold Henning, the guy who was the president of FINA, um, who was an American who had given us the awards uh, medals presentation said, while we were walking around the pool, why don't you wave to everybody? Well, he had a hold of one of my hands and the other hand was holding my shoes and I'm dangling my towel around my neck. And I, I, so I held up the shoes. I had no contract with Adidas. I had no contract with anybody. And so I had met at the headquarters, Avery Brundage um, and a couple of his henchmen from the IOC, along with, uh, Jack Kelly, who was the president of the United States Olympic Committee at the time, and, um, and this guy, Ken Treadway. And we brought in some pictures of Shane Gould holding up a koala bear that was dressed in a Qantas Airlines little vest. And we needed some kind of, you know, well, why isn't she in a meeting? You know what I mean? Um, because they didn't have professionalism in those days. So it, it was sort of an exercise to 
I guess, pacify the Russians. But man, I was so uptight about that. I kind of like wrenched my back, you know, getting out of a Formula One simulator that was a little car that was sitting in the Olympic Village for as a form of entertainment because I had nothing else to do. So I was, you know, getting physical therapy and I was some talk about me not swimming the 100 free. And then they said, well, if you don't swim the 100 free, I'm not going to put you on the sprint relay and blah, 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 blah. And how can you do that? You're the world record holder and you're hot, you know, you're winning the medal. So I ended up deciding to not qualify first. I was seated first in the prelims, but I let Wendon beat me in the prelims. I was seated next to him in the semis. I let him beat me. And so I had qualified third in the 100 free. That was the only time I didn't actually start a finals in lane number four. I was in lane number three. Um, as a side note. So getting back to, to all of that confusion of what was going on, um, they picked me up for dinner and we went to dinner and I got back into the village at about midnight and I knew that I was getting woken up by the uh, coaching staff um, because we were going to all go to breakfast at eight. Uh, they woke me up before then. Uh, and then we were going to then get into a bus and we had to go out of the side of the village by car and around to the other side to get to the press center, which we did. Little did I know that we'd walk past this street called Kalistrasse, which was where two of the Israeli athletes had already been shot and killed and dumped over the balcony because it was only a two-story room. And it had actually been taken away. Nobody knew this because that was done pre-dawn hours. Um, we get to the press center and Heinz Klutmeier and Jerry Kirschenbaum are sitting right there at the little Volkswagen bus with the whole team and contingent for me for this press conference. Said, did you hear what happened? I kind of jokingly said, yeah, I won seven gold medals. Did you hear what happened? And they said, no, there's a lockdown at the village. Nobody's in and going in and out. We don't know what's going on. And we're seeing some stuff about some say-so about some Israelis and some terrorists and this and that. So when I got into the press conference, there was no questions about whether I'd won seven gold medals. It was all about what we saw in the village. And we said there was nothing to see. So the press conference got shut down literally in about four minutes. I was supposed to, this was supposed to last for an hour. I then was ushered out of that room and went into another part of the press center where I was with Jim McKay, the guy that was announcing for ABC Wild World Sports and was doing the Olympics. And that was a big thing back in those days because it was the first time that they actually had what they call satellite to live, but it was taped because of the time change back in New York because they were six hours ahead Munich than New York time, nine hours from the West Coast. And there I saw on the monitors, a guy that was in a Panama cap on a balcony, leaning over, discussing something with one of the hostesses that were always sprinkled throughout the village for people that didn't understand where certain things were, the athletes, you know, like, well, where's this, where's that? And, but it was a crisis negotiator. And what we were watching was this negotiation of what was going to happen with the other hostages that they had. But at that time, I remember it was just before 10 o'clock because the conference was at nine. We're watching all this and they weren't set up to actually have the tape roll for my interview it was until 10. So this is like 945. We're watching all of this stuff and nobody knows how many hostages are left in that apartment. Nobody knows anything. So I was to be taken back. So we did the interview. Jim McKay talked to me and then we went back. But now, now there's the police involved and we get back in this car and I got a police escort to get back into the village, you know, um, there was underground parking. So we went right to where the, we were actually up the stairs and then in my room, because all the swimming team was now getting up at around 10 o'clock because at around two o'clock, they were going to get in a bus and go to the FINA gala that was going to be in Garmisch Park incursion, which was about a 30 or 40 minute drive south of Munich. Who's in my room is the chancellor of Germany. And he says, you're safe. Everything's fine. We, and they're still, we don't know. They're, they're, they're still negotiating with all of the, you know, secret police. And they've got people with guns on the different buildings and everything. So I'm watching all of this stuff on the television that was in the room. Meanwhile, all the swimmers are getting up going, what's going on? You know, they're all nervous. And, and nobody wants to be where I'm at. All of a sudden, the focus was on me, you know. I became the nucleus of this attention right now. Um, so there was reports that Mark had been taken to Italy. Mark was on a plane to S uh, Sweden. Mark is in London. Hell no. Mark is sitting in the Olympic village in my room watching this stuff on TV. Well, 
I was supposed to go later on that afternoon with uh, Sherm Shavor. We were being picked up by Mercedes um, and being, going to be driven to Stuttgart. And I was going to be given a Mercedes-Benz car um, for free because I was retired from swimming. You know, I wasn't professional now. And then we were going to drive the next day up to Frankfurt and Frank were going to put that on a cargo plane. And I was on a plane with uh, Sherm back to Chicago. And then I was going to be picked up by my roommates because I already paid for my apartment. And I was going back to dental school two weeks late. That's what I was doing. Didn't happen exactly that way. Um, I was taken by a car with Sherm Shavor to the airport. There were arrangements that had changed that I was going to be flown to London from Munich that evening. This is Tuesday. And those um, Israeli athletes had not left the village yet. I had an army blanket thrown over the, me and told to get on the floor of this car that's taking me to the airport until we got out of the village because it was pressed, looking at every single automobile that went in and out of that village, trying to get the storyline. And they took me and put me directly on the plane. And then I flew to London. And when I got to London, I was picked up by a police. This was all arranged through the State Department. Um, and I was then taken in a, a limousine to downtown London. I was like cops and robbers, like Keystone comedy, man. I was, they changed cars on me and changed the colors halfway you know, in from Heathrow into town. I was put into a hotel. We had a guard outside the room. And I remember going to bed with Sherm Shavor and he said, hmm, winning seven gold medals is dangerous. I don't know if I want to be in the same room with you. I said, well, I, well hell, we've got a guy that's got a gun right outside the door. When we woke up in the morning, that's when I heard that the uh, other Israelis at the military base had been fired upon and they threw a grenade in one of the, whatever. We, we know the rest of that story. And it was kind of weird. Um, I had to get up very early. I was being picked up and I was taken to a studio where I had my seven gold medals on me. Um, I got into my swimsuit and I took the famous gold medal, uh, seven gold medal picture in London. Then was ushered off to a plane that was a Pan Am flight back to Los Angeles from London. When I got to Los Angeles, I was taken off that plane, uh, directly off the plane and onto the tarmac. Um, there was a customs agent there that went through the formality of looking at my passport along with Sherm Shavor, and we were put on a PSA plane, which is now Southwest. It was supposed to be a secret. The whole plane was filled up with press on a flight back to Sacramento. And so I did interviews. They just kept talking to me about what was going on, but they were giving me more information because I'd been in a plane for, I don't know, the better part of 12 hours flying from London to Los Angeles. I had no idea what was going on during that course of time. Now it's a Wednesday. When I get to, Los when I get to Sacramento, who's at the airport? Ronald Reagan, the governor. And we became lifelong friends after that. Um, but so the bottom line is I'm sitting Wednesday night. Two days after I win my seventh gold medal with my sisters, watching the uh, memorial service they had in the stadium for the Israeli athletes, it was like an out-of-body experience saying, wow, I was just there and how tragic it was. So I became, uh, they called it the triumph and the tragedy. And, and the tragedy became a news event that was so worldly renowned that I'll obviously be long associated with that point in case we're talking about it now. Um, and so, you know, it, it was quite an experience. Um, there were a lot of other things that I don't talk about um, that were sort of covert because the only person that lived that experience because thereafter the Olympics changed as far as security for what should take place, what did take place and how it went about this these operations of me in particular and what would happen about corralling other athletes or notables that are at the Olympic games and the safety of the athletes, the safety of the press, the safety of everybody that's participating, including even the city that is being hosted in. And those are models of my experience that prevail today. And they've done a great job of not letting it get any further than 
what a protocol could be and what happened. For anybody that's young that's listening, in, in 1972, this was known as the Munich Massacre. This was, uh, it was a terrorist group. They were Palestinian. They were, it was, they were known as Black September. And uh, they took the hostages. And, um, and it, 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 was, it was just a moment that it, yeah. if, if you were, when I was, I was a child at the time. I knew very little about it. I, I was taught about it later. But it, it was the first, my understanding, first terrorist event that had happened at an Olympic Games. The second was 1996 in Atlanta. That was domestic terrorism, a pipe bomb in 1996 but this was a big moment but really the context of this was and talking to coaches that have known you mark was that you know this they the hostages were it was the israeli team you're jewish your yeah. life had to be in peril that you know the and half joking sitting around having cocktails with coaches they would laugh and say yeah we were escorting mark around and we were standing about three feet back because we didn't know what was going to happen next you know there's so much truth to that, um, and there's no denying that. Um, the fact was is that, and I, I don't do a lot of thinking about it, but my comment to that is is that there was obviously a directive way before the Black September knew about that would be a Mark Spitz. That that wasn't, uh, you know, in the, in their sights. You know, could have they during the course leading up to that horrific day? Could have they changed their directions and gone for me? I'm sure that that may have been a consideration. Even to the extent that they were smart enough to wait until that thing that I was doing and swimming in that program concluded, you know, uh, or maybe it was just ironic that it would happen that evening after I was done into the early morning and all during the ensuing day, the following day. Of, of what took place, you know? They've documented very well about what happened. You know, they made a movie, Spielberg made a movie on it. I was brought in as a consultant um, and, and uh, to a certain degree about just the motions and movements. And the movie was oriented towards that time frame, not necessarily me. So it was the, from the evening on moving forward and all the logistics of hunting them down and, and stuff like that. But like any sort of thing, there's interesting situations like serendipity that, that you know, if you think about the, the coaches were back and this and that, and who knows who could have, you know, approached them. Um, and it's something that I don't dwell on thinking about a lot. And it's only because it, 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 it took the course that it did. And so only reflecting that, you know, I was lucky. And so was everybody in the Olympic games, except for those Israeli athletes. And yet I've spoken with the wives of those Israeli athletes that were, that were slain, several of them. And they all agree, you know, they would have wanted the show go, to go on, to not let the movement of Black September prevail. And the Olympics have done really well at, at, respect, at being respectful for that, that whole incident. <laughs>